Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Hi everyone, Maddie here. I'm just jumping in to let you know that in this episode, we are going to be talking about historic infanticide. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of After Dark Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal. My name is Dr. Anthony Delaney. And I'm Dr. Maddie Pelling. And today we are joined by Dr. Eleanor Yarniga, who is a medieval historian, author and broadcaster. You may have heard her on our sister podcast, Gone Medieval. And she focuses on gender and sexuality in the medieval era, apocalyptic thought. Ooh, nice. Oh, yeah. Uh, propaganda and the urban experience in the late medieval period. Eleanor, welcome to After Dark. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to talk about magic. So, Eleanor, tell us a little bit about what we can expect from this episode before we get into the nuts and bolts. I think the number one thing that people are going to get out of this is that King Arthur is in many ways a choose-your-own-adventure. Mm-hmm. And it is an entire genre. It's not just like, oh, there's King Arthur and the, here's his story. Because like, well, what does that mean? Because, you know, King Arthur from, you know, stories that we have that sort of survive from 6th century Wales is very different to King Arthur as he shows up in 15th century French stories. You know, and, and it's different again to, you know, the King Arthur stories that we tell as well now. So there is a kind of rotating cast of characters. And the way that I say you kind of need to think about Arthuriana is a it's kind of like the MCU or something like that where it's like you know here's another hero who comes in and he's got his standalone stories over there and there are constant reboots yeah Yeah. yeah. it's an extended universe and all of it is canon Mm -hmm. it's just added to constantly yeah Yeah. it's it's a very ongoing process of yes and you know and you might not like one uh, particular part of something so you strip it out you can put another one in and you know people will just start over over and over and over again and I think the thing that's also really quite interesting about it is we tend to think of it as this sort of quintessentially British form of literature. But actually, people um, in Germany are writing about this. People in France are writing about this. So, you know, everyone's kind of getting involved. It isn't like very specific to one region or place. Mm. See, that's very interesting to me because I would think of Arthur 
and his knights as being quite English Mm -hmm. and tied to ideas of national identity, sometimes for worse as well as better, um, and that he kind of shapeshifts according to the times that he's needed in. But it's interesting that he has this kind of broader geographical reach. Isn't he Welsh? Yeah. Okay, yeah. well, there we See, go. No, Isn't that interesting, though, yeah. that, that that's yeah, yeah, my yeah, perspective yeah. on it, he, that he does shapeshift for different people. Yeah, and, you, you know, you're bang on here because it's like, so our very, very, very first Arthur stories come from Wales and they come from the 6th century and we imagine that there must have been uh, some kind of oral tradition that we are not exactly privy to. And the versions of these things that we have in manuscript form, they show up, you know, a few hundred years even after that. And the original King Arthur stories are so funny in comparison to the really rich literature that we have later in the medieval period or, you know, when the Victorians get their hands on it again, because they're like so sparse. They're all rhymes. Arthur kind of shows up the first time as like a certain king's cousin or something like that. And they're like, oh, yeah, I went over to my cousin Arthur's place. And there he is. And Mm. they. So he's not the main character to begin with. No. But we know him now as the main character mm-hmm. and a sort of ensemble cast around him. Yeah. So can we just establish some of those other characters? So we've got Arthur eventually. At what point does he become the main character? Fairly quickly. So, you know, at first he's somebody's cousin and then people say, oh, well, this is a cool guy to go with. We'll go, we'll go with Arthur. Yeah, sure. Fine. You know, um, then we have some that uh, people might not have heard of uh, kind of earlier on. So you get um, Bedivere. Kind of shows up around from about the 10th century Say or that one so. Benavir. Benavir. Okay. Um, and he first shows up to like take Excalibur and give Excalibur to the lady in the lake. Oh, that's, that's, that's like, pretty formative in yeah. terms of the legend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Mordred. Yes, heard of Mordred. Uh, yeah, we know Mordred. And he's like one of the very, very earliest. Um, he shows up in a, like a historical work, the Annals Cambriae, in about 970 or so. Arthur's bastard son Morgos shows up pretty early on. Yeah, it's like, so Morgos is, is an interesting one because um, the fact that Arthur has a bastard son comes in pretty early on. The fact that, like, he is eventually going to help cause the fall of Camelot, that comes in a lot later. Gwen, Yes. You know, your friend and mine, uh, he kind of shows up around for the first time in the 11th century. Um, and that's in Kukwik and Olwen. Um, and, like, Olwen or Owen, like, he shows up at the same time then. Um, then there's Eric uh, from Eric and Anine. Eric? Eric. And it's like, what's Eric doing here? Jim. Yeah, yeah, right? It's like, I, I love it that there's, like, a guy called Eric. Because yeah, yeah, it's yeah. all, like, Tristan yeah, yeah, and yeah. Benavir and Eric. Eric. <laughs> your boy Eric. You know him. Um, and that's one of the earliest poems. And it's really interesting because it's a long meditation on whether or not you should love your wife. Which is, which is very funny because they're like, this guy got married and he's having a nice time with his wife and he doesn't adventure anymore. That's not right. I know that's not right. Uh, but so. Interesting though, right? Because we're talking about relationships between men there. Yes. And how rela- their relationships with women can be uh, cause attention in those yeah. kind of Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's uh, central Arthurian story, right? That yeah. Guinevere, the queen, mm-hmm. becomes a problem. Mm-hmm. Answer me this, just going through some of the names there. Mordred, Morgos, mm. we've got Morgana as well, who we'll get on to yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Why are all the baddies in Arthurian legends, as someone whose name begins with an M, why are they all M letters? Is this some kind of medieval linguistic the most specific question okay, It's always bothered me. <laughs> so one of the things that I will say here is we need to step back for, because, you know, Morgana or Morgan, mm-hmm. or sometimes Morgan Le Fay, sometimes she's a baddie and sometimes she's a goodie. Icon. Okay, I take it back. Totally. Yeah, because like, she, like okay. I mean, she is, for me, like it's all about, uh, I want to see like the Morgan extended universe mm-hmm. because yeah. she's uh, really smart. Uh, she kind of gets things done. Um, she is in a lot of times a protector. So for example, um, by the time we get to the big stories about the fall of Camelot and everything, mm-hmm. um, 
she's the one who kind of saves Arthur. So, you know, Arthur is wounded, but we never see Arthur die. And she takes Arthur to the Isle of Avalon. Right. And like, that's where he is. Sometimes she's good and sometimes she's bad, but that happens with like a lot of the women characters. I mean, we see this in long running TV shows, right? Where mm-hmm. after a while, the characters have to change their characterization because mm-hmm. this, the plot isn't moving forward. Well, exactly. And, you know, we see this in general with um, the men as well sometimes too. So if you look at the really super early Welsh Arthurian legends um, and one of the guys that shows up all the time is a k or kai or key you know it's the same guy different Mm -hmm. ways of saying it Um, and he initially is like that's arthur's bestie and he's like the greatest guy and he's like and and, you know oh we're, we're just hanging out by the time you get to the later medieval things, he's an antagonist. He's a bad guy. He like is uh, making fun of Percival for no particular Not reason. Percival. Yeah, I know, like Percival, <laughs> the, the nerd, the nerd one. Uh, you know, and poor Percival. And poor Percival. Um, you know, that so, me. Um, and then you have uh, Gwen is really, really good, and everyone goes, "Oh, Gwen's the best knight." He's mm-hmm. like, he's you know this the number is one. Gwen of Green Knight fame. Yeah, you know, Dev Patel in my head always. Oh, uh, you know. Dev Patel's in everyone's uh, head all the time, right? <laughs> is that you know? So this yeah, is taking yeah, a turn. Yeah. Just well, just one moment for a dev. Call me. Um, so, dev, if you want to come on the podcast at any point, <laughs> like, you have Gwen then become like the superhero knight, like the the Superman version of things. Mm-hmm. Then that gets handed over to Lancelot, and suddenly Lancelot's the best knight. But then when you get into the kind of more romantic poems, like Lancelot gets his own kind of series, like Lancelot and the Knight of the Cart, and things like this. And this is when he falls in love with Guinevere, and right. suddenly he's shagging the bosses wife uh-huh. and then it's like oh now there's this new moral tension uh, which always happens with medieval romance literature and more specifically medieval courtly love literature has this tension right okay and so what we mean by romance literature or courtly love literature is that it is a genre of literature that is specifically about hooking up with married ladies Yes. And it's a sort of moral test for mm-hmm. the men, right? Mm-hmm. That it's part of their quest. Yeah. And it's like partially what you're supposed to be doing is you're supposed to be spurred to greatness by these women that you're in love with. And then question mark, you know, like you're, you're supposed to gain their love. And there's an understanding that's fine because, you know, who gets married for love? Nobody gets married for love, which is part of like one of the, the tensions in Eric and Anid. Because they're like, oh, what, you love your, this guy loves his wife. You know, like, that's weird. You know, like, that's, that seems strange. And, and, you know, sometimes the knights of the round table do marry for love, and that's all very nice. But for the most part, it's reflecting a reality for rich people at court, which is that you marry for business reasons and you you marry because that's who you got told you're going to get married to. Then you kind of like sit around all day in court with a bunch of other fancy rich people with time on your hands, and you go, hey, Hey, you know, at each other. And then then you write poems and, you know, they fall in love and there's all kinds of scandals. So we have a very cool book about this, which is called De Amore by Andreas Capelanus, sometimes also called The Art of Courtly Love. And it's all about how you two thirds, maybe no, 80% of this book is all about how this is how you seduce married women. And like, here you go. And like, and how like being married is no excuse for not like having extramarital affairs, blah, 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 blah. And the last 10 pages are like, psych, I just told you how to pick up on married ladies. So you wouldn't do it. Be a good Christian. And that's kind of what's going on with Arthuriana as well. Mm-hmm. There's so, a bit of titillation and mm-hmm. then bam, the moral, yeah. don't do it. So it's like the whole time you're kind of supposed to be going, go Lancelot, go Guinevere, you're in love, shag, shag, shag. and But then they do shag and then they're like, oh, now you can't find the Holy Grail. 
Mm-hmm. Because only the, the pure of heart can find the Holy Grail. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. enter Percival. Percival is then introduced. He's Lancelot's bastard son. It's sometimes, like sometimes not. Like all, <laughs> yeah. like, they all have different origin He's, stories. Whoever like, you need him to be at whatever time. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, it's and, like a telenovela. Like we've forgotten who is related to who yeah. at this point. Like it's, yeah. Yeah. And so it like basically like uh, then you have Percival get introduced and Percival is very pure of heart and he does everything right. And he's able to uh, discover the Holy Grail. Oh. And then he eventually ends up ascending bodily into heaven. Like it's very gosh. Yeah. You know, it's, but it's also funny because like even the Holy Grail changes Mm. and what it is. So, you know, initially they're like, oh yeah, the Holy Grail. And you're like, what's that? And they're like, I don't know, man. It's, it's like the philosopher's stone or something. It's something that can uh, treat aging or illness. So it has magical properties. Yeah. And then later on, it becomes clear that it's, you know, like the cup that was used at the Last Supper. But this is something that gets added in way, way later. And now we take that for granted when, you know, if we say Holy Grail, we're all imagining a cup. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But for them, even just these objects change all the time. You know, when you're talking about Welsh King Arthur, his court is just like somewhere like Camelot doesn't get introduced for hundreds of years, like as a concept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these things change all the time and the meanings change. But what is one of the things that we have to keep in mind of all of this that's quite interesting, because especially when we know that these things go back to kind of the sixth century, is when we're talking about Arthuriana in the Middle Ages, they're like, this is a story from the past. These are long ago and far away stories. They're not contemporaneous. I know when we think of them now, we tend to go, oh, here's some medieval people. These guys are like, mm, King Arthur lived, and there are histories about this. So uh, we, we have uh, Geoffrey of Monmouth, who's, this is like the boy who kind of invents oh. a lot of Arthur stuff. Because he he writes this book called the Historia Regum Britanniae. So, Catchy. Know, like, yeah, very good. So it's like, a, it's, a, it's a supposedly a history of Britain. And he's the first guy who's like, and Arthur was real and he lived then, right? And he fixes this as a kind of time after the Romans have left Britain, but before the Saxons show up. I'm thinking of the Clive Owen film with Kira Knightley here yeah there you go obviously oh, entirely clearly. historically accurate duh yeah so it's like <laughs> the, the, the idea is that they're kind of living in there's this idea of a kind of like nebulous Britishness you know sometimes it's Welsh sometimes it's English sometimes it's British yeah. but it's before Saxons come over and introduce mm-hmm. whatever is going on there it's after Romans have left so this so it, it's an idea of going back to a yeah. Britishness mm-hmm. that's very vague and woolly and we can't you know it's hidden in the mists of time but mm-hmm. it's it's outside of the empires or the the invasions of these different forces whether it's the Romans or the Anglo-Saxons exactly yeah yeah so with this you then also are meant to understand that um, Arthur is Christian. Mm-hmm. So, so one of the things is um, they these guys um, have kept the Christianity after the Romans have evacuated, and they are set up in opposition to the Saxons who are still understood as being pagan. Okay. So it's also kind of like a call out to like, oh, yes, and British people are very, you know, Christian mm. or whatever. So this is kind of happening in the mists of time. And then so when... English or Welsh people are writing about this. This is about like an understanding of their own nationality, right? When French people and German people get into mm. it and they do get into it, they're like, for them, it's like, it's the Wild West. Pew, pew. You know, they're like, oh, oh yeah, what's going on up in England? Like, it's <laughs> the edge of the world. It's chaos. It's chaos up yeah. there. Like, it's crazy. They got, I don't know, man, story about a dragon under hill. Uh, <laughs> there's a lady in the lake. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. he's, oh, oops, he shagged mm. his half sister. You know, like things like this. Yeah. So it's, for them, it is like, 
the edge of civilization, mm -hmm. the edge of the Christian world. Who even knows what's happening in Britain? Are they people? I don't know. So you can tell these stories. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, folks. Since you're a fan of history, you clearly want to understand how we've ended up with the world that we have. Well, I'd like to tell you about my show. It's called Dan Snow's History Hit. And on that show, you get a daily dose of history and the stories that really explain just about everything that's ever happened. If you want to know the origin stories of the cities we inhabit, what's in our kitchen cupboards, why we've always been drawn to dictators, the deep history that explains what's going on, for example, in the Middle East, well, we've got you covered. And if you'd rather be regaled with dramatic tales of powerful empires, we do that too. Get a little bit smarter every day with Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Would it be fair to say that some of the elements that we find in these stories, so I'm thinking about things like the lady in the lake or the dragon under a mountain, you know, these things about monsters on the periphery. And obviously you see it as well in Anglo-Saxon poetry with Beowulf and mm -hmm. stuff. It's not exclusive to Arthurian legend. But if there's something about how people are understanding their landscape and telling those histories in those terms, but also I'm thinking about these magical objects, the Holy Grail, Excalibur the sword. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure there's lots of other, I'm thinking uh, the Green Knight's like head, head and things. You know, <laughs> there's these kind of magical objects in a world when people are writing these stories down, material objects are really worth a lot. You know, mm. it's not every day you come across a well-made sword, for example. You know, weaponry is really important. It's really meaningful. Only certain people have access to like really high quality weapons and things. Is there something there that we can extract from these myths about how people understood the material world, the landscape, their, their world around them? Oh yeah, absolutely. So one of the big things that you see often with Arthuriana in general is that big, magical, huge adventures take place in the woods. And the just the woods, the woods, you know, the woods that are over there um, and, and the woods for medieval people are really a fraught kind of place. And you, you've got to understand that for medieval people as well. You know, the relationship with nature is quite different. You know, it's, it's a bit more antagonistic. Uh, you know, there is this kind of thing about we really need to tame it in order to make sure that we can just get enough food to eat. Yes, right. Yeah. And so woods are experienced as this place that is inhuman. Right, because it is wild and it isn't a place that you can necessarily be making crops or things like that. And it's also experienced as very expressly vaguely magical. You know, there are lots of worries um, in general with folk culture about there being monsters in the wood, about, you know, wizards being in the woods or people who can uh, practice magic and they don't need to participate in society. So yeah. they can just kind of go out into the woods and like do their thing. There is this real worry about, you know, just even things like wolves, mm. Mm. a lot more scary for them, you know, things like that. Um, there's also the tension there where a lot of the time um, when there are woods too, they're kind of like owned by the crown and you're not supposed to be in there 
because there's this kind of like worry about poaching. Yeah. Um, and, and, and there are places that maybe outlaws can escape to as well, right? I'm thinking exactly. later on of like Robin Hood, you know, obviously has presumably older roots. Well, and, and you're bang on there too, which is also something about weaponry. Mm. Um, because there is a real uh, worry about travel and these places where you don't have anyone kind of looking at things. You know, there's no such thing as police. In the medieval period, there's no such thing as, you know, a law and order that isn't brought about by a kind of lords. You know, there is common consent of communities that, they, you know, everybody wants to get along. But if you are on a road or going through a woods, who knows what's in there? Who's who's in there and what are they going to do? And so this is a lot like weaponry because weapons are really tightly controlled in the medieval period. You can't just like go around having a sword if you are a commoner. Swords are a very specific a shout out to the fact that you are noble, you are kind of like a knight or higher, you're allowed to have a sword because, you know, they're dangerous weapons and, you know, there is a very express idea of who gets to wield violence and that's the nobility, right? Mm-hmm. They get to do violence. Now, on the other hand, you are allowed to have a sword if you're a common person and you're traveling. Oh, okay, interesting. Like the the one time that you can do it is because Mm. they're like, oh, it is dangerous out there, right? But so you usually have to then kind of like leave it when you get to a town or something like that. And and they'll kind of like hold it at the guardhouse or something Mm. like that. And then you can take hold of it again. Most people still can't afford it. Yeah. Most people are going to have like a pike or Mm -hmm. a knife or something like that. So, you know, all of this stuff about swords being magical we have to understand, you know, like, so the sword and the stone or Excalibur, the lady of the lake gives to Arthur as these um, signs that he is the king. This is also about like, well, who gets to have a sword, mm-hmm. right? So there's the magical aspect of it, but it's also just like, well, yeah, and he's got a sword. So mm-hmm. there you go. You know, there's our boy. And he, that's how you know he's king because he's got he's like an even better sword. Yeah, the sword. Mm-hmm. So speaking yeah. of swords, then for anybody who maybe has heard of King Arthur, but is not necessarily aware of some of the stories, can you give us some of the details of the sword in the stone? That's mm-hmm. probably one of the more famous ones, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the sword of the stone is a fun one because it introduces a lot of the characters that we've talked to, but then also uh, your friend and mine, Merlin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Merlin is uh, largely invented by Geoffrey of Monmouth, who I've already talked about before, kind of in the uh, 12th century. And he says that Merlin is a wizard. And more specifically, Merlin <laughs> exists because a demon shagged his mother um, and uh, like, and, it, and Merlin was going to maybe be a kind of antichrist figure. Mm. It's a classic origin story, isn't it? For mm-hmm. I'm thinking in Greek mythology, you know, this idea of like a god coming down or in this case a demon yeah. and having sex with a mortal woman and creating a sort of hybrid person. And indeed uh-huh. we see it in Christianity. Exactly. And so this is what, you know, you kind of get, that's how you get a Merlin. That's how you get someone who can wield magic mm-hmm. because magic is, it's a dicey area. Right. You know, it is kind of seen as somewhat suspect because you're attempting to like reorder God's universe. Right. So, you know, he can wield magic because his dad's a demon. He was going to maybe be an antichrist kind of figure. He was going to maybe kind of bring the destruction of the world. But then his mom names him Merlin after her father. And then it humanizes him. So Merlin is made very human and then he uses his powers for good. And one of the things that he uses his powers to do is kind of help out a young king, Arthur. Uh, well, and more specifically, Arthur's dad's, okay, get ready for a wild one. <laughs> so this is, you're, you're, you're meant to understand that this is a good story. But um, Arthur's dad is waging a war and simultaneously he falls in love with the wife of the guy that he's waging the war on. Is this Uther Pendragon? Yes. Yes. Merlin then magics a glamour on Uther Pendragon so that he looks like the guy whose war he's fighting. And then he goes and shags his wife. Uh. 
so, issues you know, of consent there, I would say. You know, it's I huge in the medieval world. Yeah, mm. I don't think it's great. I personally yeah. would call it not good. So anyway, and then bada bing, bada boom, that's your Arthur. Mm. Are there issues in Arthurian law then around the fact that Arthur is potentially, arguably a product of rape? Is that an issue in his stories or, or does that not come up? No, this is played as romance. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, it's not like, mm. isn't it great? Um, and this happens over and over in mm. varying uh, Arthuriana stories. It'll be like you kill someone's husband and then you show up and then like she shags you and then she's like, oh, I guess I got to marry you now and you killed my husband. You know, there are all right. these like really dicey relationships that happen all the time with this. So Arthur is kind of like growing up kind of as a bastard, as like a, you know, a few down the line. And here's where Kay comes into it as well. So, so Kay is often his older brother, but like his half brother, right? Because he's, he's half a, a bastard or whatever. And Kay is supposed to be preparing for a big tournament, but there is this sword in an anvil on a stone in a churchyard. And everybody knows that like, if you draw that sword out, which is Excalibur, there's like three Excaliburs, just so you know, um, <laughs> that you become then the king of England. And, you know, Merlin has kind of made that sword show up. Um, and then Arthur is supposed to be going and getting Kay's sword because Kay forgot it back at the castle for this tournament. And he kind of goes by and goes, oh, well, I'll just get that one. And then it goes, pring, out comes the sword really quickly. But and then he's like, oh, actually, this probably won't do. Puts it back in and then goes and gets the sword. And partially Merlin is like, you got to put it back because everyone needs to see that you've taken that out. And then Merlin has him take it out. And then everyone realizes that Arthur is meant to be the king. So it's a really interesting one because he is kind of like this deus ex machina that is kind of setting everything up for Arthur to come into being and then to also be the king. But there's also this story of Excalibur. It's, it's so confusing because there's so many stories, right? Like it's it's a very much which one do you want? It's choose your own adventure. Mm. Do you want the sword in the stone or do you want the version um, where uh, the Lady of the Lake yeah. gives Arthur Excalibur? And the Lady of the Lake is one of these, again, you know, really difficult characters because sometimes she's Lancelot's foster mother. Sometimes she's like Merlin's girlfriend sometimes she's Merlin's persecutor. Sometimes she's just like, a, you know, someone who gives you a sword and gives you the thumbs up and leaves again. So she's got these really differing parts to play, right? And this is an interesting thing about Merlin more generally is that Merlin has these really difficult and very sexual relationships with women that come up over and over again. So, uh, for example, some versions of stories will say that he's in love with Morgan. And then one of the reasons that Morgan becomes a really uh, talented enchantress is that Merlin teaches her a lot of things. But there's also this kind of like push and pull there where Merlin will teach women magic if they have sex with him. Yeah, not ideal. It's like, it's, it's very, very bad. Some of the stories about the Lady in the Lake and Merlin are kind of that Merlin has had this relationship with several women who he has taught, but he never teaches them everything and he has sex with them. And then he falls in love with the Lady of the Lake and she says, all right, well, I want to learn things, but I do not put out until you teach me every single thing that you know. And he says, okay, teaches her every single thing that he knows. And then as a result she's able to use that magic. So I've got a good uh, quote from one of the stories about this, which says, the damsel was very wise for such a young woman. She perceived very well that he loved her. She was terrified by it because she feared he would dishonor her by enchantment or he would make love to her while she was asleep. 
When she heard that he would accompany her, she was very sorry about it because there was nothing she hated so much as she did him. And there was nothing in the world that she hated as much as Merlin, for she knew quite well that he wanted to rob her of her virginity. So it's this this tension that gets set up with women, right? Where here are women who want to know things. They want to kind of like climb a ladder of knowledge, but they understand that the kind of price for admission is that they've got to sleep with this guy that they don't care about. Well, there are two separate economies going on in Arthurian law, aren't there? There's, for the men, there's violence, there's weaponry, there's questing, there's monsters, there's all of that. Mm. And the throne and, you know, fighting for that. And for women, it's an economy of... It's a sort of exchange of knowledge and sex. Those are the only things open to them. Do they ever get involved in any of the violence and the questing or are they kind of trapped in that that cycle that's the only thing available? I mean, they are pretty trapped. (laughs) I would say so. You know, I'm kind of like thinking of all of the women and like, you know, the women often are the cause of various quests. Um, you know, like in Tristan and Isolt, it'll be things like, you know, Isolt um, is a really talented healer, but she's married off to, you know, someone else entirely. And it's like her husband, like the, the guy she loves gets poisoned and like is going to get brought to her. But then like his new wife stops it from happening and like, and he ends up dying. You know, there, there are all these terrible things that happen to these women. And indeed, like what is happening with the Lady of the Lake, there's also this really kind of gross uh, internalized misogyny that happens where a lot of the other magic women hate the Lady of the Lake because Mm -hmm. sometimes she manages to get all of Merlin's knowledge without having slept with him and they all had to. And they all really resent that she got more knowledge and didn't also kind of like give up you know, didn't give up this part of themselves. Um, And what the Lady of the Lake then manages to do is cast a spell on Merlin. It it depends. Uh, Sometimes she just like uh, casts an enchantment spell on him so he falls asleep. Sometimes she magics him inside a tree. Uh, But Mm, one way or another, he, like King Arthur, is kind of waiting until someday, you know, while he's trapped within these things. So it is the one time when a woman kind of wins something. But it's quite expressly understood to be bad. I want a talking of extended universes. I want a feminist retelling of Arthurian oh, legends. Oh, it exists. If you Google that right now, I guarantee you. I mean, I don't someone's know for out sure. there doing the good yeah, work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, yeah. That's totally yeah. there. Let's finish then on one of the foremost, most famous women from Arthurian legend. That being Guinevere. Mm. But because my understanding of Guinevere is that it, it can be quite a complex representation of womanhood in that. You get this love, sometimes love lorn, sometimes someone who's not very faithful, mm-hmm. d- depending on mm-hmm. the stories that you're reading. But also she can be quite active and, and she can assert some agency, again, depending on what you're reading. So colour in her, Guinevere's world for a little bit. Yeah, so Guinevere is a really interesting one because yeah, she is, you know, the queen of Camelot. She's King Arthur's queen, but also her love story is her love story with Lancelot. Yeah. You know, and... um. And that is understood to be kind of naughty, but fine. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows that this is going to cause problems. Everyone knows that they've kind of got to keep it down and keep it a secret. But it's also understood as almost an inevitability. You know, Lancelot is really handsome. You know, he is the best knight. He is all of these things. And Arthur is like much her senior. It it makes sense within this. What is all of this telling us then? All this made up things based Mm -hmm. on some facts or, you know, it's just such this big mishmash of fact and fiction. Myth, basically. 
what is it trying to tell us about British history? Well, in the first place, it's trying to tell us that there are mythical spirits that kind of guard Britain, right? So there's this idea that Arthur is going to kind of come back. You know, he's at Avalon, he's sleeping, and, you know, in Britain's hour of greatest need, he's going to come back. And there's an old legend that says that the Welsh believe this. So, for example, some Anglo-Normans wrote about this in the description of England, and they say that the Welsh say that they openly go about saying that in the end, they will have it all by means of Arthur. They will have it all back, and they will call it Britain again. I'm just Henry VII. Firstborn male, mm-hmm. Prince Arthur, doesn't make it to the throne. But with all of that mm-hmm. in the background, what is Henry VII saying that this Tudor dynasty, the Welsh Tudor dynasty, is about to take Britain back, bring this glory? 100%. And, uh, and he does that on purpose. You know, when he comes over to England, he brings a big red dragon flag, which is supposed to show, you mm-hmm. know, the 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 dragon of Britain is, is kind of taking over again. So it's playing on these ideas about destiny um, and truth and provenance. Now, very interestingly, we don't actually have any Welsh sources that say they believe that. <laughs> uh, but we just we had just have a bunch of like Normans being like, oh, they totally believe this. Mm-hmm. And then that becomes eventually transmogrified especially by Henry VII, into, no, this is about England now. Or this is about, like, you know, England leading Britain. So, you know, this is a real kind of desire to say that there is magic that is alive in Britain. And that might be on the part of British people who want to big up Britain. And it might be on the part of, like, French and German people who are like, they're Mm -hmm. weird up there. (laughs) What are they like, you know? I think the idea of magic dormant in Britain is a good place to end and we'll never know if our well I mean we may know Arthur may come back in our lifetimes we'll see we'll don't, see don't schedule anything around that though yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm leaving my calendar open just in case Eleanor thank you so so much for delving into some of the Arthurian law and I think there's so much still to discuss and I'm sure we could do many more hours on this but that's a really nice taste of of some of that world before we go Eleanor you have a book that you'd like to plug. Give us the details. Yeah, it's called The Once and Future Sex, Going Medieval on Women's Roles in Society. So if you are as wound up as I am by, you know, the way women get treated in Arthuriana, I've got a lot more to say about that. That's a great title. (laughs) The Once and Future Sex. Thank you. Which is also an Arthuriana reference. Nice. Hey. It all ties in. It's all happening, baby. (laughs) Um, And then, of course, also, if you want to hear more of my nonsense, uh, you can check me out on Gone Medieval along with my co-host, Matt Lewis. Um, So we are also a part of the beautiful History Hit family. And uh, there's a lot more where this came from. Fantastic. If you've enjoyed this episode of After Dark, you can leave us a review. It's really helpful to uh, enable other people to find us. You can follow us along wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of After Dark. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcast. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. And as a special gift, now don't say we never give you anything, you can also get your first three months for £1 a month when you use the code AFTERDARK at checkout.